West Coast, and a great day to you wherever and whenever you may be listening. My name is Jason Dyes, broadcasting and podcasting live from the studio of EloquentOnline.net in beautiful New Braunfels, Texas, Republic thereof. This is the Power Performance Podcast, the show that asks the question, if your brand were a band... Would you leave the audience wanting more? And on this episode, starting a new limited series called Diversity, Inequity, and Exclusion. And today's episode, an open letter to the gay community, part one. Now, the reason I'm doing this, and just so you know, I used to be a diversity trainer. I would, In my corporate training life, when I was a corporate trainer, that was one of the classes I had to actually facilitate. And so the reason I'm doing this is because I believe very, very adamantly that voices like mine are excluded from this conversation about DEI. And we're into this, you know, post-Minneapolis second iteration of whatever we're going to call this. And I believe personally that in the banking marketplace, but specifically in the credit union marketplace, spending way too much time talking about it. And so the reason I'm doing this and offering an alternative point of view is very simple. First of all, I believe diversity is offered as a cure to a disease that does not exist I'm convinced that most people do not wake up every morning hoping to offend someone. Now, I spent 10 years as a professional speaker. Now, you can't tell if someone is is gay or straight when you see them, but you can tell that I'm not white when you meet me. My skin is brown. My hair is black. And when I was speaking professionally, I cannot tell you how many times it is too numerous to mention somebody would come up to me and say a variation of this. Wow. You speak English so well. Now, I never went to a safe space. I never needed to seek counseling. I never demanded that that person apologize or go attend diversity training class because I didn't have time to explain to people. My parents are white. They adopted me. And so I grew up in a very different culture than a lot of people when you sort of generalize, which a lot of you diversity heroes do, by the way. When you generalize an entire group of people based upon their skin color. So it was just something that would happen all the time. So that's one of the reasons I'm doing this because I've experienced this. I know what it's like to have people say subtle things that maybe are, I don't want to use the word offensive because I was never offended. I was I was tolerant. Uh, I refer to it as the soft bigotry of low expectations. But again, that person didn't know. They can only go upon what they're seeing in front of them, in my case, very handsome, Latin, lean young man who had just delivered a wonderful, award-winning keynote presentation at your local banking conferences. And so the other reason I'm doing this, diversity has excluded voices like mine who think it's a a waste of time and resources. Look, work has changed. Very few of us are surrounded by dozens and dozens of people every day. And if we're in a call center or something like that, I mean, how much time do you really spend thinking about, is the person next to me Indian or Pakistani? I don't really know. Are they Comanche or Navajo? Who knows? Who cares? And it has been my experience that the most avid diversity types, I call them the diversity hashtaggers, they're the most discriminatory. They're the ones who find out that, oh, Jason voted for who? Well, he must be anti-everything. And one question thing. I'm not anything phobic. I'm not afraid of anyone or anything. 
And in my opinion, the other reason I'm doing this, diversity, in my opinion, never accurately reflects the real people who get up and go to work each day, most of whom are good and abiding people. And then finally, the reason I'm doing this limited run series, and although we're talking about, you know, LGBTQ, XYZ, BINGO, AEIOU, I'm simply going to call it the gay community in this first episode um, and the next one. Now, we're going to talk about all the things related to race and things like that, but it's gotten out of balance. One thing I did in preparation for this series is something I've never done before in almost 12 years of doing the podcast. I consulted people that I really respect and trust. And in both cases, these are two of the most, one man, one woman, two of the most accomplished people in the credit union marketplace, and both said to me a variation of the same thing. If they were pursuing their dream gig as a CEO at a certain credit union, and they were up against somebody, a person of color, they know there's no way they're going to get that job. And that is simply discrimination in the other direction. So that's why I'm doing this series. I hope you'll listen with an open mind. And so, coming up after the break, an open letter to the gay community, part one. For 11 years, conference quality information without the rubber chicken dinner and without the expense report. This is the Power Performance Podcast. Did I just offend Egyptians? I'm sure they walk all different kinds of ways. Anyway, an open letter to the gay community, part one. And my first waypoint, my first memory of this, of, of, of this lifestyle, of this being part of my reality. My first memory was around sixth or seventh grade. One of my best friends at the time was a guy named Robert. We instantly clicked over music. You know, I was coming out of that disco phase. It's the late 70s, early 80s. He was into groups like Blondie and the Pretenders and some of the, I guess we used to call in those days new wave music. And even his older sister, he had an older sister who was into a band called Rush, who over the next couple of years would become my absolute obsession. And to this day is still my favorite band. Well, you know, we didn't have diversity training back in the Reagan administration, and but I knew, I knew something was different about Robert. I mean, he was sophisticated in fifth and sixth grade when most young people didn't even know what that word meant. But he didn't want to join us for the Nerf football games out at the school or baseball or, you know, we lived out in the county shooting guns. I used to hunt rattlesnakes. I used to hunt rattlesnakes in the winter, skin them, and, and people would turn the, the skins into beautiful belts or uh, headbands. They'd put them around their cowboy hats. They were really, really beautiful when they're, when they're treated and, and pinned down and stuff like that. And he certainly did not seem interested in girls. And I was. I mean, it was at that time, you know, that, you know, you're kind of making that transition from a boy to a young man. And it was like, hey, I'm all in on the girl thing. Well, I guess what we would call today when he came out and asked me what I thought, I'll admit it changed our friendship. Um, I did not know if it was common knowledge. And I was, in fact, worried about what people might think if he and I continued to be close friends. I mean, it was the 19. 19- 
80s. It's a very different time with very different attitudes about this. No one, no one was you know, getting beat up in the bathroom or anything like that. And then, of course, within the next couple of years, AIDS hits and became a thing with all of the misunderstandings and ignorance about it that happened when it first started. And like I said, I'm making this transition from, you know, a boy to a young man. And in some ways, it made me less inclined. The AIDS thing and the the stigma attached to it, 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 Robert and I basically drifted apart. And, And again, it was a very very different time. Now, you could say, well, that was rather narrow-minded of you. You could say that, but you weren't me, and you weren't living then, and, and you weren't passing your days during that time. Well, the next real waypoint for me that had a real lifelong impact on me occurs in 1992. I am a U.S. Army Desert Storm and combat veteran, but I'm in my final year of college at the University of Texas at San Antonio, and I have a job working for what you would call today a home health care agency, and this was great. Minimum wage in Texas in 1992 was like $3.35 an hour, maybe three fifty an hour, and I was making $9 an hour going out to visit home-based patients. I would take vital signs, uh, dropping off medical equipment, medication, and things like that. Well, on this particular day, I remember it was a Friday, and you have to remember, I'm doing all of this, this peripatetic job with no cell phone, no GPS, no computer. Friday morning or whatever day it was, you'd show up at the office, you signed in, and you went to this room where they had a table, like a conference table, with sections separated by masking tape, and your name was up on the wall. And I, I looked in my row, and usually have all these manila folders with directions and things like that of, w- of what to provide and things you would go pick up from the supply room, this kind of thing. And I was surprised that on Friday, I only had two assignments, which is unusual because you know, Fridays are big discharge days for hospitals, dropping things off at home because patients are heading back. Well, anyway, I went and asked the lady that ran the agency, why, why don't I have two of these? And she said, well, the first one is way out there in China Grove. But if I finished early enough, I could come back to the office and see if there were any new assignments. And this office was inside the city of San Antonio and China Grove was, was out quite a bit. And so they had these big maps um, up in the Break room. They had a map of San Antonio, like a road map, and then they had another map that showed, you know, showed San Antonio and the surrounding areas. And again, no GPS, but I had grown up out in northeast Bear County and had a general idea of where China Grove was. So I just you know, we'd sit there and you'd write down the directions by hand. I wrote them down on an index card because I found those easier to read, and I would tape them to the. That was my version of GPS. I would tape them to the horn, the steering wheel thing, and so I headed out for China Grove. Well, right before I was leaving, the lady that ran the agency said, "Hey, if you want to take a gown and some gloves, you can. You know what we call today PPE." personal protective equipment, which I thought was odd for a, what in this case was just a simple medication drop and to do um, some vital signs check. Well, I get to China Grove and I arrive at the address and the house is a trailer. It's a trailer park. And I remember that gravel driveway and going up the steps and, you know, the trailer moves a little bit and they had a screen door. It was April. It was April. So it wasn't really hot, but it wasn't cold either. Uh, It was April. And I remember knocking on the screen door. You know how it is? It's not snug. So it kind of rattles when you knock it. And a lady answered the door. And when she walked me in, I immediately knew what was going on. 
I had not checked the age of the patient. Most of the patients that I was, was seeing were geriatric. They were older. There was a very young, young man in his 20s sitting in one of those old wheelchairs with the fold-down footrests. He had some obvious lesions on his face and on his forearms. My first thought, the first word that popped into my head, I can remember it all these years later, almost 30 years later, the word was translucent. That was the first word that came to mind. He looked translucent. Well, I was not going to turn around and go put on my gloves or a gown or anything like that. I walked over and went to shake his hand. And I remember him struggling to lift his hand off the armrest. And his hand was shaking and he could only offer me, just like his fingers. Like I took his fingers and shook his fingers and he just kind of exhaled and taking a lot of energy, apparently. I did not take his blood pressure because there was no way the cuff was going to stay on his arm. And I had not brought the, the cuff that you might use for a child. And it was just a regular blood pressure cuff, and it was not going to stay on his arm. And honestly, I was worried about harming his skin in any way. His eyes were electric green. He was one of those Hispanics with green eyes, a descendant of Spanish or French genealogies. genealogies. Many people don't know this, but Mexico used to be a colony of France, France, which is why when you go to the interior of Mexico, you'll meet Mexicans that are just as white as anybody else. You see, you know, white and blue-eyed and green-eyed and blonde-haired, or you'll meet regular, everyday-looking Hispanics like myself or brown people um, with names like Bentoncourt or DuPont or Marseille. Anyway... The other reason I didn't take his blood pressure is because I knew I was in the presence of a dying man, someone who was in the last hours or days of his life. Back at the university, I was the hero on campus of the Republican students. I was the president of the College Republicans, the largest student organization on campus at the time. I had done a lot of pushback. Uh, president Clinton was the new president, and he was going to let gays serve openly in the military. And there was a huge debate about that. And I thought it was silly because we had always had, I knew a lot of gay soldiers when I'd been in the Army, and they were great soldiers, by the way. But allowing them to serve openly was a big source of debate. Again, 1992 a very, very different time. I, I had become somewhat famous on campus for demanding money from the Student Affairs Office so we could have a straight Pride Week. But now, in the presence of this young man, while none of my political feelings changed, I felt no contempt for this young man, no enmity, no judgment, and I would have done anything, Snap my fingers, whatever I could have done to save his life. He died that weekend. So I don't need anyone to tell me that I'm lacking compassion just because of who I vote for or because I don't fly a rainbow flag or don't watch shows about gay couples. What I want to say in my open letter to the gay community is that I don't care what lifestyle you live. My hope for you is the same as it is for everyone, that you have a life of love, peace, and prosperity. But when I meet you at a banking event or the, on the phone, my first question is not, is this person gay? I mean, wasn't that the whole point about this? To get to a place where you don't have to talk about it all the time. To you, young people, who think you are so oppressed, I grew up at a time 
when gay Americans had to hide who they were from their friends, from their parents. And the majority of them did so with grace and dignity. More grace and dignity than some of y'all demonstrate with all the advocacy and support that you have now. You can say it was wrong that people had to hide who they were. But if you're under 35 years of age, you have no idea what life was like back in those days. No advocacy, no support, no social media. So I'm not really sure why so many of you young people still act like it's 1950. It's not. And it's an insult to the gay men and women who did suffer in silence. Finally, and I, and I, want, I don't mean to offend anybody when I say this. But the openly gay men and women that I've worked with for the past 30 years in the Army and in my banking career were some of the most brilliant, creative people I ever met. I don't know if the two are connected. So, diversity, inequity, and exclusion. I've experienced it all. Voices like mine are not often welcome in the DEI discussion because you see who I voted for or I don't celebrate certain things. Well, I'm not going to live with that gloss of being intolerant. In fact, many of you that talk all the time about DEI are the most intolerant people I've ever met. And as a free man, I will not live under that yoke, nor will I be cowed by the tyranny of the hysterical minority. And if you did not hear this in your last diversity class, I'm glad you heard it here. My name is Jason Dyes. Thank you so much for listening to the Power Performance Podcast, the show that asks the question, if your brand were a band, would you leave the audience wanting more? Would you be doing more of that if we weren't constantly talking about D-E-I? How a man or a woman lives their life when they go home from work is none of my business and it's none of yours. On the next episode, and we're not going to do this every week. We're just going to spread them out. It's not going to be consecutive weeks. An open letter to the gay community part two. I will tell you my me too story. It wasn't a woman who harassed me. It was a gay man. And that is something we almost never talk about. And so that'll be somewhere down the road. Again, thank you so much for listening. And until next we speak, talk to you all next week. Take care.